Hello, and welcome to Entangled, the podcast where we explore the science of consciousness, the true nature of reality, and what it means to be a spiritual being having a human experience. I'm your host, Jordan Euclid, and today I'm joined by my friend Kent Kachedjian as part of the mini-series on Maharishi Vedic Science. Kent is a doctoral candidate at MIU studying consciousness and human potential. In this episode, Kent discusses how his love for fantasy, language, and philosophy brought him to Fairfield, Iowa. We discuss the life and lessons he learned from Tolkien and the disciplinary matrices from ancient Greece to today. Next, we consider the paradigm conflicts that philosophers and scientists faced when they posit theories that buck societal norms. We then discuss Socrates, the gadfly of Athens, and his trial execution for corrupting the youth and worshiping strange gods. We discuss the prescient warning Socrates offered regarding the decline of Athenian ideals and the parallels between his life and that of Jesus Christ. From there, we discuss the value of silence and the importance of living your moral code, even when it's inconvenient for external circumstances. We end the discussion considering the nature of dark matter, the subtle body, qualia of thought, and the concept of atma. Outros for this and all episodes available at entangledpodcast.substack.com. Music from the show available on the Spotify playlist, Entangled the Vibes. Please enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Entangled. I am very excited to be here with my friend Kent Kachijan as part of the Maharishi Vedic Science miniseries. Kent, how are you doing this afternoon? Hey, great, Jordan. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. Really excited to have you on, Kent. For the listener's benefit, Kent is currently completing his PhD program in Consciousness and Human Potential at Maharishi International University. I had the opportunity to read his thesis proposal earlier today, so very excited to dive into all of that with you. But before we get doing that, let's get into more of the biographical stuff. Kent, where where are you from, and how did you end up in Fairfield, Iowa? <laughs> I'm just from Virginia. <laughs> you know, it's it's kind of it's a state where you know in the north you got Washington D.C. and in the south it's farmland and Richmond in between with all its weirdness. So. <laughs> It's an exciting place to be, but I came out to the cornfields of Iowa eventually because I studied Greek. I learned how to meditate. They told me study Sanskrit. I ended up here. So, yeah, I'm I, I'm I'm pretty happy with with my life so far. <laughs> That's awesome. When I'd love to learn a little bit more about your education path, right? I mean, as we were talking before we started rolling, you mentioned that. Academia hadn't, you know, initially been where you thought your your career would take you and, and that sort of thing. So I'm curious, you know, what was it that led you to that ancient Greek course? And what do you think it was about that course that was so fascinating for you? Yeah, I mean, I wasn't a prolific reader as a kid, but I always loved reading fantasy. And if a good fantasy series hooked me, you know, I think it was Ursula Le Guin. She talked about how uh, things like dragons and magic, they... One of the reasons they're so effective is because they're a way for us to talk about real issues without saying words that immediately put up walls in people's minds. And so I think that, you know, it's it was just really cool for me to learn about how language was a huge part of Tolkien's life. And, you know, I read his materials, I read his letters, and then I kind of wanted to get to know him better through through firsthand experience. I took him. My last three credit hours to graduate were ancient Greek, and I extended my undergraduate studies to complete that. And then I ended up here to study Sanskrit and learn kind of more of the, the philosophical aspect of, 
of of what language is, especially languages that persist through time. Yeah. I would love to learn more about your perspectives on Tolkien. You know, I, I don't know a ton about the author himself. I loved reading The Lord of the Rings, but my limited understanding is that he had some sort of spiritual awakening or, or realization coming out of World War I, I believe it was, and, and kind of felt inspired to, to write The Lord of the Rings. But I, I'm probably butchering the story. No, you're fine. He had a, he had a, when they were boys, before they ever got into college, they had a group of them. There's actually a book written on it called The Inklings. I've had it sitting on the shelf for years and I haven't read it yet because I've had, there's, there's so many books to read. But uh, yeah, his, his childhood friends, all of them went to war. And I think only he and one other, one of them made it back alive. And there's a correspondence from one of his friends saying, you know, essentially, if any one of us survives, you have to write the stories that we talked about so that, you know, not all of us, you know, fade away forever. And I think that he carried that as, a, as basically a moral injunction to produce his legendarium, which he started in the trenches in World War I. That was where the, the, the Silmarillion was writing while, you know, men were getting hit with all kinds of terrible weapons and, you know, sick and maimed and all those things. That's the context in which he was his, you know, his, his thoughts that have persisted for quite a while now in the literary scene. So I, I think that Tolkien was really a remarkable human being and that he's spawned kind of like a genre of literature that really upholds and engages people in, in things that persist across time and are important. I mean, it's interesting the parallels that I can see with regards to the powers of war, right? And, and almost the, the relevance of this fictional world that Tolkien created to what we've seen happen in World War I and World War II and, you know, what's going on today where just these powers of the military-industrial complex seem so, so powerful. And, and yet, through it all, there is, there is that spirit that eternal light that that has david standing up to goliath and saying we won't take this standing down yeah i mean my just for context the reason i lived in northern virginia is because my dad was involved with the military industrial complex that was his career you know and he helped manufacture things for defense contractors that sold weapons and intelligence systems to the military for a long time so that's kind of the disciplinary matrix that i grew up in and then i ended up coming out to the cornfields in Iowa to be an academic. So that's very, very kind of different. Yeah. But, you know, I guess variety is the spice of life or something pithy like that. Well, and I'd go even further to say, you know, it's not that you're even just focused on academia, but you're focused on academia with an institution that is very firmly in the driver's seat of promoting world peace, right? And I think it's, it's very unique from a university in that perspective as well right i think i'm sure you know others certainly do at least pay lip service but in terms of actively creating a strategy for creating permanent world peace i mean i think it's 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 frankly a a very practical society that we should be striving for and it's almost surprising that we don't see more institutions doing that but that that that's kind of unrelated to the question i was getting to which is really how has that kind of transformation been coming from, as you mentioned, growing up with that kind of, and I don't want to speak for your family in particular, but I think generally 
folks who grow up within the military industrial complex can grow up with that vision of the world where, you know, to a hammer, everything's a nail. Obviously, the perspective taken at MIU is, is the complete opposite in, in terms of saying, hey, how can we elevate consciousness and promote world peace? So what has that kind of transformation been like for you? Yeah, well, um, there was a poet, a Roman poet named Horace, and Horace was always writing about nature and cycles of nature. And there's even academics who've come up with a formula to write a Horace poem. Like you just plug in these three elements, like a mathematical formula, and it'll produce, you know, a Horace poem. And, uh, you know, he, Horace has been discussed a lot, but one of the things, I, I really hope this is Horace since we're recording, <laughs> there's, a, there's a line of Horace that says, Dulce decores pro patria mori, means it is sweet and fitting to die for one's country. I don't think that that means a physical death. Horace was not writing poems for soldiers. He was talking about, you know, something bigger than myself that I will throw myself into. So I find something bigger than myself and I throw myself into it with all of my being. Then I am being a good Roman. And that was, you know, also the Roman outlook is that the wealthiest among the Romans, the way that they preserved their glory forever was not by fighting on the battlefield and killing other people, not primarily. If you became wealthy, you built an aqueduct. You built a road. The Appian family will live forever because it's still the Appian road that, that runs all those hundreds of miles. And, you know, their names did live on because they did something that was... They, they threw themselves into something bigger than themselves. I think everybody can do that. I don't think it's limited to a military or non-military context. And my dad has a very firm sense of duty in, in that regard. And I learned a lot from him. So, yeah, I that's, that's just kind of my two senses, you know. I, I'm not so sure when world peace will ever be a thing, if it will be a thing. But definitely we can have more peace inside of ourselves. And that definitely helps us to make better decisions. And it definitely reduces the intensity of the conflicts that we have. I don't think we're ever going to have a world without conflict. I don't think there's any literature that suggests that. <laughs> but, you know, we can, we, can, we, can, we can have academic debates rather than wars maybe in the future. That would right. be nice. Right, totally. You know, we can have... We're here to... Enjoy the diversity of the universe as well and in, in all its ups and downs, but I think, you know, it could certainly be a little bit less violent, a little bit more, a little bit more overall for sure. <laughs> so curious to get a little bit more thoughts on to, you know, what it was that drew you into ancient Greek. Obviously, you, you just were talking about ancient Roman, you mentioned Sanskrit as well. So curious what it was about the classics that you found so fascinating. There's not a debate that's ever occurred that didn't occur and is preserved by the Greeks. I'm not saying that they're the originators of all philosophy and math and science, and but at the very least, they, they independently developed all of the systems and thoughts that we could possibly have, just because they have a literature that spans so many ages. And another thing that was interesting, it was a visiting professor a black woman scholar came and talked to us about the differences kind of between like American and Greek slavery. The Greeks largely at one point or another, you know, they couldn't resist large empires for very long when they weren't able to unify themselves. So Greeks became slaves 
And those slaves became the teachers of all the most powerful families in the known world at that point. And so it was from the mouths of slaves and by the hands of slaves that the world was built. But their ideas then became the foundations of empires. And I think that that's kind of analogous to what we see today is, you know, it, I think it very much coincides with kind of most developing or developed nations thinking that, you know, people should have the power to be able to change their circumstances and to find, to, you know, find deep value or create deep value or meaning and live an authentic life. All these things were, were deeply, were deep concerns of the Greeks. And another thing too, is that politics wasn't like a hobby or like a political or like a theater event for them. It was just a fact that even the way that they conducted war, their shields were constructed off center so that half of their shield was covering the person to their side. And even the way that they fought was completely unified so that only a few people needed to die before the line broke. And then, okay, our, our line broke in war, you know, we lost the battle, we concede or whatever, you know, very different from, you know, the kind of crazy destructive powers that we have today even the way that they were citizens they were citizens soldiers scholars in term i'm not talking about everybody but you know that's that's what the society that's what the times necessitated they were harder times for i think for harder people and we thankfully we have the records of of that and their their discussions even in the the Socratic dialogues that are recorded by Plato, things like the immortality of the soul and rebirth, the idea that all memory, all knowledge is remembering something that's prior to time and space and causation, things like that. All the things that are being hotly debated in scholarship today, they were discussed there. I think that's why a lot of people like fantasy too, is it pulls them into a realm where they are thinking outside of whatever disciplinary matrix has essentially fed them. Yeah. The ideas they're supposed to have. Yeah. Well, and I know we've talked a lot about, you know, our, just our general fascination with ancient civilizations. And one of the things that's, I think, most striking to me is we certainly live in a paradigm that's dominated by materialism. But I would argue that's, that's actually pretty unique in the history of ancient civilizations. And I think one of the common threads we're seeing, especially as the collective consciousness is rising and, and I think more reopening in, in a lot of cases to this type of idea that many of the, you know, I'd, I'd say most kind of spiritually evolved civilizations recognize that consciousness was not just some random unimportant epiphenomenon right but that it was actually foundational and so would love to kind of get your thoughts on on all of that yeah i mean a lot of again when you you talk about paradigm and disciplinary matrix and you know all these all these kinds of things the greeks are tradition of knowledge which everybody kind of wants to claim just like how everybody wants to claim rumi no matter where you are in the world if you if you can Somebody, you know, they want to be, well, Rumi was born here. Well, Rumi went to school here. Well, Rumi wrote here, you know. And the, the debate goes on and on and on forever. But, for example, they'll cite Leucippus or Critus as being the, the founding fathers of 
the idea of atoms and stuff like that. I haven't read the text word for word, but it could be that that's an interpretation. That's that's something I want to undertake, but it's very clear with that that was not the predominant way of thinking. And I think also that the consciousness space paradigm is is a more coherent way of addressing the fact that one we have subjective experience and two it meaningfully corresponds to the physical world and for many many centuries that was just a fact of life that that was the world that they lived in and as they understood it and if they called laws of nature gods does that matter so much as it accurately was able to talk about how human beings were connected to the wider world in meaningful ways. You know, their ways of understanding the world could potentially even be valid today. But, you know, they like to take certain elements and leave other elements of of a culture when people appropriate it. So Totally. Taking dude. Yeah. I I think that that's that's kind of how to how to begin with materialism is I don't think that you can say that materialism was the dominant paradigm of the Greeks and that they were throwing away witchcraft and superstition for cold logic. You know, it doesn't necessarily work that way if you actually read the literature in the context of the culture. Absolutely. Absolutely. So talk to me a little bit more about what your own views are with regards to those two paradigms, materialism and consciousness. Have you read any Eckhart Tolle? I haven't He's, read it, but I listened to some interviews he did with Oprah. Okay, yeah. he. I mean, same thing. You know, his books are nice, but if you're listening to him talk, that's... I preferred the audiobooks anyways. I, th- I think that you get more out of an author by listening to them speak than writing, which is unfortunate because most of what we have is in writing. But yeah, he he did some work with Buddhism and studied... and. Buddhism and things like that. So a lot of things he refers to come out of Buddhist schools of thought. And I'm not a Buddhist, but way before I read anything about consciousness, I remember my Christmas one year, I got a little pocket sayings of the Buddha book. And, you know, I was absolutely fascinated with his relentless inquiry into a, into what reality was as distinct from how it is in our objective waking experience, even though I didn't have those words as a kid. Eckhart Tolle talks about a joke that the Buddha makes in one of the sutras. I have to make sure that I, I reference it correctly. <laughs> but he says, a finger that points at the moon is not the moon. Okay, well, obviously, yeah, he, but he's creating an analogy. The finger, whatever the external appearance is, or a reference to what something's essence is, is not the essence itself. And I think that's the primary problem that materialism has, is it can point out things, but that doesn't really say anything about their essence. It doesn't say anything about the intelligence that was involved in forming them. It doesn't say anything about the dynamic structures of intelligence that inform the impulses of neurons firing in the brain or how they're coordinated, or how they even carry a content, a non-physical content, which corresponds meaningfully to the external environment. So I, I think that, you know, Socrates also said a lot of things in the Socratic dialogues that align very closely with that. You also have Shankara, 
the, the great reformer in the Vedic tradition, who says, ultimately, only Brahman is real. The appearance of things is not what they are. And, you know, there's been tons of media and movies nowadays that are all exploring the same thing. I think The Matrix is probably one of the most relevant examples. I had three classes that showed, you know, The Matrix in class for academic credit because they were like, this is a debate that's raging in philosophy and we want to engage the kids. It was an effective way of making a point. Mm-hmm. The way that things appear isn't what they are. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's perception shapes reality for sure. Yeah, so sorry, sorry if I ramble a bit, but no. that's that's kind of I think that's kind of the core idea. There's a man named Chalmers pointed out a term he called the hard problem of consciousness, and people have called it that afterward. And that's essentially just the fact that we have subjective experience. It's the fact that there's an explanatory gap between neurons firing in the brain and the rich array of experience that we have as an internal phenomenon. And that goes to say that materialism is wrong on account of a brute fact of our own internal experience. But furthermore, arguments can be made that materialism is incoherent. And I think that that's ultimately why they put Socrates to death, is because he was criticizing their disciplinary matrix, their, their worldview, their paradigm, in a sense. And there are other people who have done similar in the past with the best of intentions and weren't received well. It's so... Right. It's Galileo, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. It's hilarious when, well, from a certain point of view, if, if you're able to to get past the fact that what happens to Socrates is a total tragedy in his apology. And apology doesn't just mean I'm sorry, like in English. Like, I did something morally wrong, and now I am prostrating myself before you, and I repent, you know, and things like And apology just means responding. And his apology near the end is concluding, all day long I've done nothing other than try to to help you be as good and as truthful as possible. And so instead of, you know, accusing me of corrupting the youth and worshiping strange gods and all these other things, you should be building a statue to me in the middle of the Agora. But, you know, I'm not going to run away from my fate because I'm not a coward like the people who are trying to persecute me through the means of the city. And he drinks the poison willingly. And I think that that also was something that we don't have, thank God we don't have to do that in the tw- in 21st century America every day. I would push back on that, though. I, I think, and this is, this is a, a bit of a contentious discussion, but I think if you look at what happened during the pandemic, certain doctors, very qualified, were censored for positing theories that didn't go with what those in charge of the CDC and FDA wanted to, to be saying. So I don't know. I think, I think it's morphed to be sure we're not forcing people in the public square and calling them witch and burning them at the stake per se, but you know, the, the forces of censorship and, and suppression have, are, are certainly still around. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, I don't think that it was something that was ever intended to be solved. Uh, mm-hmm. It's just a, it's, there's always going to be, I think people who are more thick-headed than other people. 
And, you know, to someone who is not receptive to, you know, getting a better understanding of the way that things are, and I don't mean them having a particular belief, but, you know, for example, advanced physics is going to be another section of my paper. And a lot of people still argue about physics and posit that physics says that there is a very rigid fabric of space-time and Newton's laws and this, that, and the other thing. And if you look at the literature of advanced physics over the past century, it begins with Einstein's five Titanic 1905 paper, out of which come, you know, the wave nature of electrons. He won the Nobel Prize for that. And it took them more than 15 years to give him the Nobel Prize for the photoelectric effect. Not for the energy mass equivalence, not for E equals mc squared, not for showing the true size of atoms. You know, they were having, tr- we still have trouble understanding Einstein as almost as much as they did 20 years after his his papers that fundamentally change the way that advanced physics sees the world. You're right. It's well, and you know, to be fair to Einstein, it is very abstract, complicated stuff to understand. So I, I can understand why people don't wrap their heads around it, but I'll go even further and say, you know, I would argue that Dr. Hagelin's paper is consciousness, the unified field is the most important paper over the last 50 years. And most of the world has never even heard of it. Right. So you, you notice how just these, these dramatic paradigm shifts, they just, they take time to catch on. Right. But once they do, it's, it's like, it's, it's impacts can be very profound. Certainly. Another thing that, you know, I am pushing for on my, to my department and the proposal committee that we'll form after is essentially that the, the hard problem of consciousness is almost copyrighted by Chalmers. Just because he, you know, he wrote about it at the right time. He was an eminent authority in the field. And, you know, now we know it is Chalmers' hard problem. That I'm sure helped. (laughs) Yeah. This, this, this harder problem of consciousness that first David Scharf talked about that he found in a footnote of Immanuel Kant. And Kant, I mean, he's, his categories of the understanding come from Aristotle's categories. His ideas of pure reason go back to Socrates and they're written through Plato, the, the, the ideas of the forms. So these are the, the, these ideas don't trace back to one person. There is over two millennia of scholarship well-documented saying that materialism is not only wrong, it is conceptually incoherent. And I think that there's also a very large hesitance on the part of people who study the ancient world to get wrapped up in contemporary debates. It's like, no, we hold that stuff at a distance. We have 2,000 years worth of scholarship. We don't need to take more onto our plate. But I don't think that that's necessarily the nature in which those debates were happening. They They were meant to be relevant to the times. Otherwise, why have they been preserved? for so long right i totally agree and i think it even gets into you look at the architecture of what they built and the artwork of what they built i mean we live in this reductionist paradigm where you know and and not to denigrate artists and architects of our day by any means it's just i think people think about it just in form in terms of this is a piece of artwork to to be pretty right or this is a building to to serve as an indoor place to do business right but they miss the fact that 
past past civilizations understood how to embed very detailed knowledge within these forms of art so that they could be reserved for future generations. You know, there's a really interesting discussion in the scholarly community in the past, I don't know, decade or two. You go into museums and you look at Greek sculptures or Roman copies of Greek sculptures. They're always pristine marble, right? And you're like, oh, there's something so beautiful about it just being the pure form without color. That's not the way that they were in the ancient world. According to recent scholarship, they were painted. And due to the ravages of time, or they were buried underground, and then when they were excavated with early archaeology, you know, they, were shot, they washed off the, the paint along with the dirt. And so we're not really seeing their essence as they were. We, we see a pale reflection of them, and I think that's the same thing with ideas and time. It takes a new people articulating the same eternal themes in order for them to be relevant again. And the only thing that makes that meaningful is that, that, that they live the knowledge that they espouse. And that's a rare trait to find, but, you know, I think it, there's, a growing, there's a growing collective of individuals that wherever they politically align... They essentially believe that it, it's important first, first and foremost that I, I live my values. They're not just, you know, they're not just my values when they're convenient. So you touched on this idea of the harder problem of consciousness, and I know that's, that's pretty instrumental for your thesis proposal. So I would love if you would dive into that idea a little bit further. Great. Okay. Well, since you looked over the most kind of the more recent back and forth than what I've been having, this is a quote from David Scharf, my thesis advisor. The nervous system has evolved to support our ability to survive, but the cognitive content of our thought is irrelevant to survival on the materialist viewpoint. So if you take his example, I'm sorry, I can't show the graphic here since we're on a podcast. If you take the example of a man running from a tiger, right? There's a lot of qualia that he's experiencing there. He sees the tiger's fur and its distinctive stripe pattern, and he sees it's moving toward him. And maybe even on the materialist viewpoint, you can say, okay, unified experience of a tiger. Okay, fine. Let's, Let's concede that, and that happens. How... Can you explain not just the neurons evolving over time to fire to make the muscles move? How does the man make the decision to move? What impels those impulses of intelligence that neuroscience is documenting in the brain? The impulses of intelligence are not the intelligence from which they originate. And that is something that's been discussed and hotly debated in scholarship for hundreds of years and still no satisfactory answer is available so i think the harder the harder problem of consciousness has to deal with how our internal life corresponds to the wider life that's going on around us every single moment and without a meaningful answer to that it's uh, the the way i phrased it in my most recent email to to my department was it's like building a house of cards in a windless place it's stable only so long as it's not challenged and or it maybe not challenged is probably too rough a word but not critically examined there's there's a, a quote by nietzsche something like i stared into the abyss and you know, and it stared back. The more you look into 
the explanatory gap, which is the hard problem of consciousness, the more and more you begin to ask how, on the account of materialism, are, is my own inner experience, which is a brute fact, and everyone has it, and everyone attests to it, and everything that we think, do, and speak, and act, you know, all attests to that hard problem of consciousness. The more you look at the gap, the wider it gets. It begins to look back at you. And the same, I think, with the harder problem of consciousness, which is how do the structures, how do the dynamic structures of intelligence that I obviously have that are directing these neural impulses, what are they? And how is that explainable in terms of materialism? Because materialism doesn't, won't say that. A tenet of materialism is that everything mental, our whole mental life, is essentially a passive byproduct of physical interactions in the material brain. And that's, you know, that's epiphenomenal. Our life is not epiphenomenal. And if you were to argue that, then Darwin is an, an interpretation of unguided Darwinism doesn't believe in anything close to intelligent design. So then how are those, how, how is that man's thoughts when he's supposed to be running corresponding to the very real threat of there is a tiger behind me? And so far, there haven't really been satisfactory responses to, to that challenge. And that's a challenge that's been posited for centuries. So that's, I guess that's kind of in a nutshell. Usually nutshells are a lot smaller. <laughs> no, I mean, it's very, it's very profound concepts. And, and it's really, really awesome to hear you like diving into all the nuances here because they are so meaningful and interesting and you're right like the i love your analogy of you know the longer you look at that explanatory gap the wider it gets right because it's like it it's how do i phrase it when when you grow up in a paradigm where everyone thinks the same way that of materialism like you don't even notice it because it's just accepted you've never had really that opportunity necessarily to think about it from another perspective but then when you come and learn about, you know, what, what the Vedic tradition has understood and to your point, what the Greeks were building, were bringing out more philosophically, the logic is just so much clearer, right? Oh, of course, experience matters, right? Like that, that sounds silly, but like, yeah, of course, there's a reason that I have these emotions and, you know, maybe these, these profound experiences that people I'm sure have had of of what we call synchronicity, or if you're more skeptical, maybe just coincidence. But nonetheless, like the idea that, you know, maybe, maybe there is this whole idea of the universe is trying to tell you something and showing you signs and leading you the way. Like maybe there is, maybe there is this connection to above as above, so below, and, and that it's not just a metaphorical or, you know, hippy dippy, let's be compassionate because we're all connected, but it actually has some very meaningful underlying essence. Yeah. Also, the whole the whole kind of hippy dippy, you know, feelings kind of trying to exclude sentimentality. I remember being in an English class, and our professor was basically performing a literature review with us as a whole lesson. And she said, back when I was in school, they were training us to avoid metaphor. And there's a literature of twenty or thirty years in English instruction where it says, "Do not use metaphor because it's a weak way of conveying knowledge." 
Why do you mean a weak way of conveying knowledge? Language is inherently symbolic. And she was showing, you know, study after study, and then she said, and now look at the literature 10 years later, and she gave us many examples from prominent scholars saying, well, actually, no, you know, all language is symbolic, you know, metaphors can sometimes concretely communicate something way more effectively than you ever could in purely analytical terms. And again, that they may or may not be aware of the wider context in which that discussion's been happening for centuries, but that's been happening in continental philosophy, which is kind of like the, the antithesis to, to analytical philosophy. Analytical philosophy is basically kind of like, it's like the forum for the militant atheists, whereas continental philosophy is all the people who contest the militant atheists and have stayed with that long tradition. Can I read you a quick quote from... This is from Plato's Republic. So this this is supposed to be Socrates speaking. Socrates allegedly says, Then what of he who on the one hand believes in beautiful things, but on the other hand neither believes in the beautiful, nor in anyone who is able to lead him into stable knowledge? Does it follow that his life resembles a waking or a dream? Think on it. Is not the dreaming state of consciousness, whether asleep or awake, to think that a semblance is not a semblance, but that which it resembles? This is Socrates essentially saying that if you really believe in materialism that hard, then your life isn't a waking, isn't like the waking state of consciousness. And your knowledge is not reliable. Your life resembles a dream because you don't think that it that there's anything real other than what your sensory experience indicates to you. So, you know, from modern physics, we know also that not everything is, not even advanced physics, you know, look at the spectrum of light. There's only certain frequencies of light that we can see. I'm not positing beings of light or anything like that. I'm simply saying our sensory, our nervous system doesn't get the whole picture of what's around us and within us all the time. So, I mean, that's, that's supposed to be 500 BC. We touched on the Buddha before. We touched on Shankara. Those are just a few that, that talk along those same lines. Now, one question I did, had for you with, with regards to Socrates. I'm not familiar with the, the story of his death in the trial. Would you provide some more background on that? Sure. So Socrates had the, well, for him, I don't think he considered anything unfortunate, not even death. He was a very positive, resilient individual. And he was not afraid of, you know, not having people's approval. And, you know, he's, he's had a nickname that stuck to him, the gadfly of Athens. Like he was some pest that was going around and asking people questions all the time. And if you look at what happens in history, you know, Right around that time, Athens and Sparta successfully repelled the Persian Empire. And what happened as they became more technologically and materially advanced, they became the next unthinking force of many unconscious systems. And, you know, Athens then became about empire rather than building the best citizens that it possibly could. And although Sparta subsisted on slavery, that was the only way they were able to be 
the apex military presence, you know, in their in their neighborhood was they had the helots doing all their farming and cooking and everything for them and you know, they just trained to be warriors. At least Sparta stayed true to its ways, even though they weren't perfect. And Athens would lose the Peloponnesian War. And Socrates was warning about these things the whole time. He was going around and talking about, okay, just because you learn how to speak fancy rhetoric and you learn a lot of words and you learn how to dress a certain way and you learn what to say and how to agree with people and all that stuff, doesn't mean that you're actually educated. It doesn't mean you're a philosopher. You're a sophist, which means you like to wear philosophy like like a suit, but you don't live it. It's not it's not you. You know, you haven't found philosophy within yourself. And he makes a lot of quote unquote enemies and they hold a kangaroo court and they charge him of two principal crimes. The first is of corrupting the youth because, you know, a lot of people went to go hear Socrates speak. And some of them ended up being associated with the, the, the Spartan presence in Athens when, you know, Athens is, is troubled by, by growing Spartan power and things like that. So basically, the first charge is of corrupting the youth. And the second is of worshiping strange gods, because, you know, Socrates says a whole bunch of things, you know, like, I, I, I cannot disobey the voice of the god inside of me. Or, you know, he talks about people's internal, uh, he's talking about their conscience. It, they may not have used the same word, you know, but it, what, what is an internal entity inside of you that speaks with creativity and intelligence? Well, god would be a logical word to use for that. And so they set up this kangaroo court and, you know, a lot of those people ended up being the ones that had a lot of money and power. And so just like in our society, you know, instead of a government by the people, for the people, it became a government by the corporations, for the corporations, and we see the same eternal theme playing out. And they picked their sacrificial lamb. And Socrates went willingly, and he, you know, he basically says, I have no fear of anything that happened. At no point did the voice and did the God inside of me speak that I was doing something wrong. Not even when I left my house, and I knew what was going to happen here. I knew, you know, that you were going to sentence me to die, and I knew that I wouldn't run away. So I'm going to a better place, and I'm telling you who have used the means of power at your disposal to do this, you know, that you're going to a worse one. Which, I mean, people can interpret in a lot of different ways, but he wasn't wrong in the context of history either. Athens would never fully recover from what Socrates was warning about. So, I, I don't mean to be gloom and doom, but, you know, I think everybody should read Socrates at one point in their education, even if they feel like they don't understand a lot. No, I think that's a beautiful story. And I think while it's, you know, certainly tragic in a sense, particularly if you're of a materialist mindset, I think if if you are of more of a consciousness mindset where, you know, he, he understood that even death is just another phase of existence, right? And, and that the true logos within transcends death. And so, of course, you know, how could he not, how could he do, how could that light within him 
have led him to do anything but stay completely true to his morals, to his truth, till the last day. And, and frankly, the story is very reminiscent of the life of Jesus Christ. There are many, many, there's two figures, I think, that were presented as being very popular among the founders of America, which is a whole other discussion, you know, they, you know, all men are created equal, and also black people are three-fifths of a person. So, right. You know, it's just, it's just a whole, and also the it's corporations a mess. make the laws. It's a mess. <laughs> but one of the things that they did do right was they looked at people who lived their values, and one of the greatest measures of living for one's values is not changing them when they are inconvenient to external circumstances. And they looked at both Christ and Socrates as being role models in that regard. Many, many of the founding fathers. So, you know, do with that what you will, but, you know, they're, I, I think that, that, is, that that's a pretty fair comparison to make. Both of them wanted to, they, they were just trying to help. And sometimes medicine doesn't always feel good. Sometimes it stings a little bit or it doesn't taste nice. It's medicine. <laughs> Totally. So um, we were talking about this idea before we started rolling about the original translation of the beginning of, of the Bible, right? In the beginning was the word, but you talked about that's actually not, not a very accurate translation. So I'd love if you could kind of elaborate on that idea. Right. So there's one philosopher that comes immediately to mind, and that is Marcus Aurelius. And I think that he's probably, I'm not trying to demean efforts of other philosophers, but uh, Marcus Aurelius is probably the closest I know of of the world having a philosopher king. His reign was tr had many, many, many problems. His wife potentially, you know, getting with one of his generals and causing, you know, untold amounts of chaos amongst the ranks of the Romans. And he's just saying, cool, and he delivers, you know, a speech to his troops saying, let's remember that this is about Rome and that we are all Romans and that these are our houses and our families that we're going back to. We're not marching to war, we're going home to talk with our brothers. And, you know, what kind of leader says things like that? Well, Marcus took an, an active interest in philosophy from a very young age. And Marcus talks about the Logos and his... Me it, it's a t work that is now titled Meditations. I don't think Marcus gave it that name. There's wonderful books by, I think, Gregory Hayes, is a Marcus Aurelius scholar, one of the only good Roman emperors there ever was, you know, and it's because it was a part of his life, and it just happened that he was someone who had power and influence and who then recorded his thoughts, which he didn't intend for other people to read. And it also says something that he wrote his thoughts in, in Greek, which is not a language you, if you were a Roman, you would write in Latin. That was, you know, the 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 language of, of preserving things and also a cultural thing, but he, he really wanted to make philosophy a, a tenet of his life, and so he did. And but there's also Ep Epictetus's Enchiridion. Epictetus was a, a big influence, Gregory Hayes thinks, based on what Marcus mentions and how he talks and things like that. And Epictetus starts out the Enchiridion basically saying, you know, we don't have control over anything that happens to us in our lives. The only control we have is how we respond, you know, and he gives many analogies saying, you know, pretend you're a guest at a dinner table. 
everything's being passed around. You don't have to push away or grasp for anything. Everything comes in its time. It will be offered, you know? But you have to be responsive. It's, it's a skill that you cultivate. That's what philosophy helps you cultivate. And Marcus would probably equate that to receptivity of the logos. You're seeing that intelligence and dynamism are things that are structured into the fabric of creation. The whole universe speaks of intelligence. The person from the perspective of the consciousness-based paradigm doesn't have to defend that premise. It's part of the paradigm. It's one of those things that is, again, so readily apparent once you once you start to recognize it, it's, it's everywhere. And, you know, getting back to the founding fathers, I mean, they certainly recognized it, right? They talked about natural law in the Declaration of Independence. And I think that we just, uh, we've forgotten what that means or, or understood the, profound, the profundity of the fact that our universe, our world, our atoms, our solar system, everything is just has this beautiful design these fractal patterns right these this clear interconnectedness that that is meaningful for lack of a better word yeah i don't know i i think that you'll find it anywhere you go in the world like when we before there was a little gap in our conversation silence is also important i think a lot of people don't experience silence enough to become comfortable and also to allow themselves to have silence. If you live in a society that doesn't reinforce the value of silence, then what value could you possibly assign it? Unless you're willing to look different, which is not something that always feels good. But again, not all medicine tastes good. That's just a part of life. When you really suffer really terrible stuff in your which I don't think I've really suffered very terrible things in my life like some other people have but everybody has an idea of what it is to suffer and the first thing that really happens when you really suffer you become quiet if only for a moment and the first thing when something's really funny before everybody starts laughing you know there's that moment of dead silence and eruption into laughter the greeks called this catharsis it was some release of energy Release of energy from where? And impelled by what? Why is laughter so similar to crying in terms of the mechanics of laughter and crying? Why, is it, why can we have two different, completely different reactions to the exact same event? You know that old saying, like, you either, you either laugh or you cry. <laughs> There's something that impels the, the impulses of intelligence in the material brain. And... What that something is, is really interesting, and I don't think has been written enough about. And I don't think that it's, it's somebody's morally wrong if they subscribe to materialism in one of its forms. But those are questions that they have to answer, just as people from the opposing viewpoint have to answer critical questions. Right. And I think the important point is, also, that materialism has really been the only option served to the vast majority of folks, right? I mean, you know, outside of the people who maybe go down deep rabbit holes of philosophy and really explore this kind of stuff, you know, if you grow up in the traditional cat, you know, academia and, you know, get your undergrad or whatever it is, like you just, you're just not necessarily exposed to a lot of these ideas. So it's hard to conceptually have just 
arrive to them organically, right? Absolutely. Another thing, too, back on the topic of fantasy, there's a wonderful writer called Philip Pullman who made me bust a gut when I heard or read an interview. And he was saying, Harry Potter's been taking all the flack because parents are thinking, you know, fundamental, fundamentally religious parents are thinking that it's making their children practice witchcraft or whatever. That's the new Vogue thing. He said, Harry Potter was taking all the flack when I wrote my novels about killing God. You know, that's, that's a very, that is, if, if somebody gets well into his, uh, his Dark Materials trilogy, which, you know, he's writing about a, a very hot topic in advanced physics today, dark matter and potentially dark energy, and, you know, mul- multiple worlds theory, you know, there's that new Doctor Strange movie that went crazy and the madness of the multiverse. I didn't think it was as good as the first one. I'm going off topic. Anyhow, Pullman, Pullman says, you know, Harry Potter was taking all the flack when my novels were about killing God. Thing is, though, is that Pullman in his novels, is it's clear it's an atheist that's writing the novels. But he doesn't call it God. He calls it the authority. It's a disciplinary matrix. It's a structure that he's addressing. He's not addressing the idea that there could the, the universe could be more wonderful than we understand. Or human beings are capable of, of being noble and achieving great things and just generally living the values that they espouse. And even, you know, from, from an atheist's perspective, in his universe, people, people's souls take the form of an animal external to them. And people's souls can interact with one another and touch as they have physical forms. So, you know, I don't, I don't think that it's a, it's mostly a problem with, it, it'll get weeded out in time, but it still requires some vigilance in fundamentalism from either end of the spectrum. You, you can be a militant atheist just as much as you can be a, fundamental, a fundamentalist religious person, you know, and neither of those are balanced positions. And I don't think either of them really have a, a place for us in the 21st century going forward. I agree with you. And I think that, you know, you mentioned this idea of what the administrator, is that what it's called? The authority. The authority, It's all, yeah. it's all about opposing and killing the authority. He, he basically kind of recasts, sorry, Milton's Paradise Lost. And so it's a war between angels and they're, they're defector angels on, on the side of the rebels. Yeah. Well, and so that's what I was going to ask you about, because I think that as I've learned a little bit more about agnostic philosophy and, and some of the ideas of that paradigm, it's, it's opened my ideas up to, to the possibility that it is a little bit more nuanced than, than just saying God is harmony, God is natural law, right? Because there is what we call evil in the world, right? There is this seemingly force that works to suppress the development of consciousness, right? And so you've got these ideas of authority, the architect, the archon, right? That perhaps perhaps there is both this underlying bosonic force that is the divine unifying force of everything, but perhaps there is also a counterfeit spirit or some force that has distorted what exists in the higher realms to the reality that we experience today in our in our human realm 
I forget the man's name. He was Tolkien scholar who wrote biographies of Tolkien, and he he did an audio book about different you know different books in fantasy. And he was talking about look at the Lord of the Rings. What is unique? What is the unique element of the Lord of the Rings as opposed to other forms of fantasy? Every great work of fantasy speaks to people for reasons. It touches people's souls. How does it do that? In various ways. The Lord of the Rings is not a quest to go get something. It's about giving something back that people don't need and furthermore hurts them when they don't when when they try to take power for power's sake. And you know Frodo is the least likely hero of all. What does he do? He gives a treasure back it from where it came. And I think that that is a completely unique perspective. And also another thing about Lord of the Rings is it, there's never a question as to what is right and what is wrong. That will differ according to every person. But everyone has an idea of what is right and what is wrong. Everyone has consciousness. And everyone, therefore, has moral responsibility. So, you know, language it in whatever terms you want. But when the inner voice inside of you says, don't do that, listen. I think that that's, that's a very, I think that's one of the reasons why Tolkien continues to resonate with a lot of different people and continues to be very highly adapted. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier as well that, you know, dark matter, dark energy is a very hot topic in physics these days. And you had got to have a pretty, pretty cool experience working in dark matter. So I'd love to hear about what that was like. Yeah, it was really interesting. When I first came, there was a brilliant student, Olivia Seidel, and she had written, you know, programs to basically take raw inputs from the scales where they were weighing charged capacitors and dummy weights and then comparing and searching for, you know, anomalous changes in weight over time on these super duper, super duper fancy scales. And I worked on the code a little bit with other students such as Alec Perone, um, various very bright undergraduate student and things like that. And that's kind of the way it started was kind of with, you know, basically trying to sort through data and put it in a readable format with timestamps to collect experimental data. Since then, a whole new lab chamber has been built. They secured a good amount of grant money to do all this. And, you know, I got to see a little of the grant writing process and participate in that. And I'm just very, very, I, I have a very sincere thank you to deliver to the physics faculty at MIU, first and foremost, David Scharf, because, you know, he allowed me to get involved in research, which is, from the perspective of my, my Greek professor as an undergraduate, it's, it's our responsibility to humanity to further our field of knowledge. Every professor sh- everywhere should be doing research on something. It's, it's non-negotiable. That's what being an academic is, is that you reinterpret and make that information meaningful in the context of your time and place. So it's just been a, a wonderful opportunity. And they're finding really, really interesting findings. It's in the university reports from, I think it's behind me, 2021. And this year of 2020, I guess it would be the 2023 university report. Um, Actually, in the 2021 university report, there's an interview where I interviewed Dr. Hagelin, and he talks about 
you know, where they were at that point. And now this year, there's pictures of the new lab, and I got out to see it today. So it's very exciting. It's exciting the idea that there's something, there's a lot out there in the universe that we don't understand. And from the perspective of advanced physicists, it's not just a lot, it's the vast majority. There's only five, you know, the estimates are like that 5% of what's out there is the observable universe. The rest is things that we either can't interact with or we don't know hardly anything about. So let me ask you then a question. What do you think is dark matter? Okay, well, I can give you the question that I asked Dr. Hagelin was, do you think that this dark matter could be the, the stuff out of which thoughts are made? And, you know, he talked a little bit about how the subtle body is something that's discussed in many different forms of literature. That's Would not that primarily like what the they're doing bottle? right now. Right now, what they're looking for is anomalous changes in weight gain. Now, how people interpret the results, that's different. And also, all of this is unpublished. And there's more details in the university reports. But basically, what I think dark matter is, I came into dark matter research really excited because I read Philip Pullman's His Dark Materials. And the whole thing was about links, potential links between uh, dark matter as an exotic form of matter that we don't understand and potentially it observing long-range evidence of intelligence like the dark matter is thought to exist in halos that surround the galaxy and now we know that it's not uniformly distributed and also it's our best working theory for how not only you know if we're traveling around the sun at a certain speed we're traveling at, I don't know, 50, 60,000 miles per hour, something crazy like that, and we don't feel it. Our solar system is traveling at 100, I'm sorry, I don't have the figure off of my head, but like hundreds of thousands of you know miles per hour around the galactic core all the time. With that amount of speed, by Newton's classical mechanics, two things should happen. We should be ejected off it out into space a long, long time ago, you know, the, the pull of observable matter in the universe, in the galactic core is not enough to hold us. And also the spiral shape of the galaxy is being held intact at every point. That shouldn't happen because the points that are closer to the galactic core should rotate faster than the ones that are further out. They're, if they're rotating at the same speed, they have to tra when you're farther out from the galactic core, you have to traverse more distance. So the spiral shape of the galaxy shouldn't be possible. And yet it is. So where are we then? Well, there has to be something that's managing that beyond Newton's classical mechanics, which were they're a product, I think, of the mid sixteenth the mid sixteen hundreds maybe mid-1700s, sorry. So, you know, science has advanced hundreds of years since that point. And we haven't talked about the reality of the world being framed in terms of physical part of states in over probably 100 years, seriously. So then where does that leave us? The physical is surprisingly non-physical. There is some, there are structures of intelligence in the universe of which we know very little and yet are responsible for a lot of the observable empirical effects that advanced physics has witnessed.
So my, my thought, I think it probably has to do something with the subtle body, but it'll be really interesting to see what the, what the empirical results from the scales are. Because they 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 have built a Faraday cage. They spent many months on buoyancy analysis, just making sure that the that the buoyancy due to the air around the scale isn't messing with the readings. They have the room controlled in half of a degree Fahrenheit at all times through heating and cooling systems in the inner lab chamber and all kinds of fancy gizmos and gadgets. And that's because they know that whatever results that they publish, regardless of the claims that they make, it's cutting-edge science. And so they really need to make sure that they cover all their bases. So that's that's a lot, but I mean, that's that's kind of where, where I'm at in terms of, you know, based on, you know, what I got excited about in terms of, I, I thought it had something to do with the subtle body. Yeah. And when you use that term subtle body, is that the same as like the light body? I don't, the only thing I know about quote-unquote light in terms of like related to philosophers i think it was ibn sina who was a really really big islamic philosopher these guys memorized aristotle's metaphysics alongside the quran and could recite it from memory so they were working within the greek tradition of knowledge and also following the disciplinary matrix that they had of islamic scholarship right until it was shut down and you know, there hasn't been philosophical inquiry in the Middle East in a very long time. But before then, Ibn Sina, you know, said when you you get to a certain point and then you see that everything that there is is light. I was like, wow, that's fascinating. It doesn't really give like a structure of what the subtle body would be like, but he's definitely describing something that was real to him. He's way more clever and intelligent than I'll ever be. Man spent his whole life learning everything that there was to know in the world at that time. Aristotle talks about the vegetative soul, the animal soul, and the human soul as being kind of like layers of the soul. And you see similar structure of knowledge in the Vedic tradition, where you have, I think that's Anamaya Kosha, is, the, is like the food body. So you have a food body, you have a thought body. So the food body would be physical, right? You have a body of thought have a body of fine feeling then you underneath all of those layers of the the soul or the atman is the atman it's it's itself completely untouched utterly non-physical so all of those things if the vedic literature's ontology reflects reality as it is would have different structures of dynamism and, and intelligence that maintain their integrity. So I, I think it's hard to, the subtle body would probably be a very kind of like a, which one from which tradition, you know what I mean? So, so do you think it's possible that dark matter is some form of Atman, some essence of it? I think dark matter probably is a great next step for science to realize that intelligence is not something that is contingently true, it is necessarily true in nature. Okay, contingently true could be like Barack Obama, right? What number president was he? If I Wikipedia him right now, he was the 44th president. That's contingently true. It could have been otherwise. Another person could have been elected. 
but the way that history unfolded, Barack Obama was the 44th president of the United States, right? Okay, necessarily true. It's necessarily true that water in its liquid state is wet, because that's the way that things are. If water, if the conditions are so, water will be wet in the liquid state. You know, there's no, there's no ands, ifs, or buts about that. So on the materialist perspective, dark matter is probably going to be something that is interesting and flashy, and they're probably going to make another Doctor Strange movie about it. And that'll be cool. Mm-hmm. It'll have nice special effects. Has some nice hydrogen colliders. <laughs> but it's probably not going to demonstrate its own self-referral dynamics of intelligence. And there's evidence for that happening through effects which have been empirically attributed to dark matter, which are discussed in both those university reports I talked about before. So that's kind that's kind of where I'm at, where I'm like, okay, you know, I based on how gripping Pullman's writing was, and from what I've learned about taking classes in advanced physics and working with someone who is both an advanced physicist and a philosopher, and being kind of familiar with the wider scholarship that exists on it, I think that it's involved with the subtle body. But again, what is that subtle body according to which tradition and which part Mm -hmm. of the subtle body? lot to learn it's crazy and you talked about you know all these different ideas of even the soul right like in the materialist paradigm we we reject that it even exists but you look at other cosmologies you mentioned the vedic i think the egyptians also had several different forms of the soul right like it's just it's just kind of like this rubik's cube of reality that the more you unravel and try to make sense of everything we find the more questions that arise yeah I don't I don't want to spoil his dark materials for anybody who's interested in reading it, but I'll say that near the end of the, the last book, there's a thought that occurs from somebody that you'll become very familiar with over the course of reading the series if you want. And it's a child. And it's that child talking about how even when we die and our atoms are dispersed, when, when we die, every time they take one of my atoms, they're going to have to take one of yours as well because we're bound together. She's, it, they're ta- he's taking a scientific subject, which is quantum entanglement, and he is using it as a narrative device. Do I think that's exactly how it happens? No. But that story was, you know, there wouldn't be a single dry eye if we were in a movie theater, you know, at that point of a child articulating, you know, even if there is no, you know, bearded man up in the sky making judgments about me or whatever, you know, it's evident that there never was non-life. All death feeds life. Our atoms are going to be alive in another form, you know, when we pass away. Whitman says the same thing. He talks about seeing grass. In Song of Myself, he talks about seeing grass pop up from the mouths of dead men. He's writing around the Civil War, right? And he even says that specifically, the horrors of fratricidal war. And he talks about a child came up to me with a handful and asked me, what is the grass? And I told them I couldn't know any more than they could. You know, at one moment, you know, it, it seems to be springing up from the, from the mouths of dead men and the next, you know, it's leading life forward. Ken, this has been so much fun. I mean, you were just an absolute wealth of knowledge. You're, you're, literally, I think an encyclopedia of philosophy. So thank you so much for coming on and, 
sharing your wisdom with me and, and the listeners here. I, I've learned so much today and really, I really enjoyed getting to talk with you. Well, thank you so much for kindly hosting me and for having a discussion. I look forward to talking more informally. Sorry, I, I talked a lot, but you know, I feel like I'm, I've kind of just been in that mode. So no, that's lately, awesome. So. That's, that's what we're here for. I'm just, just some guy throwing funny questions at you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I really thank you so much for graciously hosting Jordan and I appreciate the chatting a little bit and throwing ideas back and forth. Absolutely. Thank you, my friend. And we'll be in touch. Okay. Looking forward to it. Yep. Thank you all for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the episode. In this discussion, Kent described the life, philosophy, and trial of Socrates, a man who is utterly devoted to truth and to living his moral code that he would rather die than compromise on what he believed. His apology served not as an entreaty for forgiveness, but as a defense against the charges labeled against him, charges of corrupting the youth and worshiping strange gods. Rhonda Kelly explains, the Apology is Plato's account of the three speeches that Socrates gave at his trial for false teachings and heresy in 399 BCE. At the age of 71, Socrates fought at his trial not for his life, but for the truth. He urged his fellow Athenians to examine their own lives, to question their leaders, and to pursue wisdom. He warned the judges that they could not avoid the truth or silence their critics by killing him. But he also promised his friends and students that death was nothing to fear. Plato, Socrates' faithful student, was an attendant at both his trial and his subsequent execution. It was up to Socrates' students to record for posterity his teachings and to bear witness to his trial because the great teacher himself would have never bothered. Socrates did not trust the written word. Thankfully, Plato had no such reservations, and he gifted to us the Apology, which stands over two millennia later as a monument to freedom and justice and truth. 2,400 years after his death, the life and death of Socrates serves as a timeless lesson to us today. The gadfly of Athens showed us that there are things far worse than death, such as abandoning your moral code when it becomes inconvenient for you. That often those who point out that the emperor has no clothes are met with retribution from the emperor. Despite this fact, the long march of history is driven by the men and women who remained true to their ideals, even if it meant they're labeled heretics, lunatics, or spreaders of misinformation. Here are pieces of Socrates' apology. I hope it serves as a reminder that an empire in decline need not fall to autocracy. That civil liberties and open discourse are principles worth fighting for. They're principles worth dying for. What do I deserve? The man, then, awards me the penalty of death. Well, but what shall I, on my part, O Athenians, award myself? Is it not clear that it will be such as I deserve? What then is that? Do I deserve to suffer or to pay a fine? for that I have purposely during my life not remained quiet, but neglecting what most men seek after, money-making, domestic concerns, military command, popular already, and moreover, all the magistracies, conspiracies, and cabals that are met with in the city, thinking that I was in reality too upright a man to be safe if I took part in such things. I therefore did not apply myself to those pursuits, by attending to which I should have been of no service either to you or to myself." But in order to confer the greatest benefit on each of you privately, as I affirm, I thereupon applied myself to that object, 
endeavoring to persuade every one of you not to take any care of his own affairs before he had taken care of himself, in what way he may become the best and wisest, nor of the affairs of the city before he took care of the city itself, and that he should attend to other things in the same manner. Being persuaded, then, that I have injured no one, I am far from intending to injure myself, and of pronouncing against myself that I am deserving of punishment, and from awarding myself anything of the kind. Through fear of what? Lest I should suffer that which Meletus, my accuser, awards me, of which I say I know not whether it be good or evil. Instead of this, shall I choose what I know well to be evil, and award that? Shall I choose imprisonment? And why should I live in prison, a slave to the established magistracy? Shall I choose a fine, and to be imprisoned until I have paid it? But this is the same as that which I have just mentioned, for I have not money to pay it. Shall I then award myself exile? For perhaps you would consent to this award. I should indeed be very fond of life, O Athenians, if I were so devoid of reason as to not be able to reflect that you, who are my fellow citizens, have been unable to endure my manner of life and discourses, but they have become so burdensome and odious to you that you now seek to be rid of them. Others, however, will easily bear them. Far from it, O Athenians, a fine life it would be for me at my age to go out wandering and driven from city to city, and so to live. For I well know that wherever I may go, the youth will listen to me when I speak as they do here. And if I repulse them, they will themselves drive me out, persuading the elders. And if I do not repulse them, their fathers and kindred will banish me on their account. Perhaps, however, someone will say, Can you not, Socrates, when you have gone from us, live a silent and quiet life? This is the most difficult thing of all to persuade some of you. For if I say that, that would be to disobey the deity. If, on the other hand, I say that this is the greatest good to man, to discourse daily on virtue and other things which you have heard me discussing, examining both myself and others, but that a life without investigation is not worth living for. Farewell to Athens. You have condemned yourselves. For the sake of no long space of time, O Athenians, you will incur the character and reproach at the hands of those who wish to defame the city, of having put that wise man, Socrates, to death. For those who wish to defame you, you will assert that I am wise, though I am not. If, then, you had waited for a short time, this would have happened of its own accord. For observe my age, 71, that it is far advanced in life and near death. But I say this not to you all, but to those only who have condemned me to die. And I say this, too, to the same persons. Perhaps you think, O Athenians, that I have been convicted through the want of arguments by which I might have persuaded you, had I thought it right to do so and say anything so that I might escape punishment. Far otherwise, I have been convicted through want indeed, yet not of arguments, but of audacity and impudence, and of the inclination to say such things to you as you would have been most agreeable for you to hear, had I lamented and bewailed and done said many other things unworthy of me, as I affirm, but such as you are accustomed to hear from others. But neither did I then think that I ought, for the sake of avoiding danger, to do anything unworthy of a free man, nor do I now repent of having so defended myself. But I should much rather choose to die having so defended myself than to live in that way. For neither in a trial nor in battle is it right that I or anyone else should employ every possible means whereby he may avoid death. For in battle, it is frequently evident that a man might escape death by laying down his arms and throwing himself on the mercy of his pursuers. And there are many other devices in every danger by which to avoid death if a man dares to do and say everything. But this is not difficult, O Athenians, to escape death. 
but it is much more difficult to avoid depravity, for it runs swifter than death. And now I, being slow and aged, am overtaken by the slower of the two, but my accusers, being strong and active, have been overtaken by the swifter, wickedness. And now I depart, condemned to you by death, but they condemned by truth, as guilty of iniquity and injustice, and I abide my sentence, and so do they. These things, perhaps, ought so to be, and I think that they are for the best. In the next place, I desire to predict to you who have condemned me, what will be your fate? For I am now in that condition in which men most frequently prophesy, namely when they are about to die. I say then to you, O Thedians, who have condemned me to death, that immediately after my death a punishment will overtake you, far more severe by Zeus than that which you have inflicted on me. For you have done this, thinking you should be freed from the necessity of giving an account of your lives. The very contrary, however, as I affirm, will happen to you. Your accusers will be more numerous, whom I have now restrained, though you did not perceive it, and they will be more severe, inasmuch as they are younger, and you will be more indignant. For if you think that by putting me to death you will restrain anyone from upbraiding you because you do not live well, you are much mistaken. For this method of escape is neither possible nor honorable, but that other is more honorable and most easy, not to put a check upon others, but for a man to take heed to himself how he may be most perfect. Having predicted thus much to those of you who have condemned me, I take my leave of you. Death is a blessing. To me then, O my judges, a strange thing has happened. For the wanted prophetic voice of my guardian deity on every former occasion, even in the most trifling affairs, opposed me if I was about to do anything wrong. But now that has befallen me which ye yourselves behold, and which any one would think, and which is supposed to be the extremity of evil, yet neither when I departed from home in the morning did the warning of the God oppose me, nor when I came up here to the place of trial, nor in my address when I was about to say anything, Yet on other occasions it has frequently restrained me in the midst of speaking. But now it has never, throughout this proceeding, opposed me either in what I did or said. What then do I suppose is to be the cause of this? I will tell you. What has befallen me appears to be a blessing, and it is impossible that we think rightly who suppose that death is an evil. A great proof of this to me is the fact that it is impossible, but that the accustomed signal should have opposed me, unless I had been about to meet with some good. Moreover, we may hence conclude that there is great hope that death is a blessing. For to die is one of two things, for either the dead may be annihilated and have no sensation of anything whatever, or, as it is said, there are a certain change and passage of the soul from one place to another. And if it is a privation of all sensation, as it were a sleep in which the sleeper has no dream, death would be a wonderful gain. You, therefore, O oh my judges, ought to entertain good hopes with respect to death and to meditate on this one truth, that to a good man nothing is evil, neither while living nor when dead, nor are his concerns neglected by the gods. And what has befallen me is not the effect of chance, but this is clear to me, that now to die and be freed from my cares is better for me. On this account, the warning is no way turned me aside, and I bear no resentment towards those who condemned me, or against my accusers, although they did not condemn and accuse me with this intention, but thinking to injure me. In this they deserve to be blamed. Goodbye. Thus much, however, I beg of them. Punish my sons when they grow up, O judges, painting them as I have pained you, if they appear to you to care for riches or anything else before virtue. And if they think themselves to be something when they are nothing, reproach them as I have done you, 
for not attending to what they ought, and for conceiving themselves to be something when they are worth nothing. If ye do this, both I and my son shall have met with just treatment at your hands. But it is now time to depart, for me to die, for you to live. But which of us is going to a better state is unknown to everyone but God.